to the 464th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, and I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Pacific Island journalist and scholar Lagapovia Sherelle Jackson to talk about the winter 2022 Tonga volcanic eruption and about COVID more generally in the Pacific Islands. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live on Twitter and on the COVID Calls YouTube channel. And you can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As always, please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of March 11, 2022, the World Health Organization reports in Tonga 1,320 cumulative cases of COVID-19. In the last week, 367 of those cases occurred or were reported in only a 24-hour period. There were no cases of COVID-19 reported by the World Health, World Health Organization as of January 24th. No deaths have been reported at this time. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. This is the narrative of Joseph Sikulu, and it was published January 21st, 2022, in the Humanitarian Aid section of United Nations News. A tsunami swept over much of Tonga in January of 2022. Joseph Sikulu, a Tongan national, was in Sydney, Australia, exiled from home by strict COVID-19 travel restrictions for three days with most communication lines severed. His family and friends were cut off from the outside world, and Mr. Sekulo feared the worst. This is his narrative. I grew up here in Australia, he said, but I spent my last few years living in Tonga as specific director for Climate Action Group 350.org. I came back to Australia at the beginning of the pandemic, and I have not been able to go home since because the borders have been completely shut off to the rest of the world. This is from January. Great thing about that is that COVID has not reached the shores of Tonga, he reported. One case made it through, but they caught it while the person was still in quarantine and it wasn't transmitted to the community. So they've been really strict on who they let in and how people come in. They want to make sure that everybody is vaccinated before they think about opening. Actually, the first repatriation flight was scheduled to come in on January 20th, 2022, but after the tsunami on the weekend, it was canceled. There are quite a few people from Tonga stuck here in Sydney waiting to go back home. I'm glad that being in Sydney, I've been able to send support back home, but it's also very difficult being separated from everybody at the times families usually gather together like Christmas. But particularly now, when people at home are facing hardship and there's not much we can do from here. We were watching TV last weekend and saw news about Tonga. Then we just started scrolling through Facebook and seeing all of these stories about an eruption that had happened and saw people actually going live on Facebook because the water was doing funny things and nobody knew what was going on. People were live streaming from the coast, just trying to figure out what was happening. And then we watched them running from the tsunami and screaming before communications were completely cut. 
We weren't able to talk to anybody from Saturday up until about Wednesday. Actually, on Saturday, we'd been rejoicing with my family that Cyclone Cody had just swept past Tonga last week without causing any kind of damage. We thought that we had escaped the worst, but we didn't realize that the actual worst was just coming up. Actual disasters aren't a new thing in the Pacific, and systems are in place so that everyone knows what they have to do in the case of a cyclone. But a tsunami is a totally different kind of disaster because it's unpredictable. We didn't know how big it was or how far it had affected because communications had been cut. We just had no idea of the magnitude of the volcanic eruption, and it turned into this huge thing with everybody saying, that it was a once in a thousand years type of event. Through all of Sunday, all of Monday, all of Tuesday, every day until we heard from people, we feared the worst. Some people had access to satellite phone and internet and were able to get tiny bits of communication out that gave us glimmers of hope, but we were worried. One person would start crying, then everyone else was crying. It was just so difficult to be disconnected from home, not knowing what's going on. I'm really thankful now that we've been able to speak to everybody at home and find out that everyone's doing okay. The thing I'm not concerned about is the resilience of my family and my people. The smaller islands close to the volcano took so much damage, the waves swept right over them. And we're hearing now from people there who survived by climbing the coconut trees. The government has come in and evacuated people already because it's complete decimation. There's nothing left on some of these islands. At the moment, the death toll is still three. Again, this story is from January of 2022, which we're very thankful for. But we know as the Tongan Navy gets through to all the smaller islands, there's a possibility that figure will rise. So many people in the Haepe Islands have sustained injuries trying to escape from the tsunami. Agriculture is the main way to survive, and knowing the effect of the ashfall has had on land is going to be really important. It will determine how long it's going to take to completely recover. Initial reports said the ashfall has affected all of the crops within Tonga this year. People were told not to go near them, not to touch them. But the great thing about the Tongan community is that there's a lot of support coming in for overseas. There are more Tongans outside the country than those who live on the islands, and everybody's mobilized to make sure our families have everything they need. They'll make it through this. It's just going to take a really long time for them to recover. This is the narrative of Joseph Sekulu, which appeared in Humanitarian Aid, UN News, January 21st, 2022. Okay, I'd like to turn to my conversation for today. I've really been looking forward to this one. Let me introduce my guest. Lakapovia Sherelle Jackson is a leading climate change journalist and scholar with a focus on small islands, gender, environmental negotiations, and human rights. Sherelle brings deep experience in Pacific Islands journalism and media startups as the founder and editor of the Pacific Environment Weekly, the first environment news website and syndicate in the Pacific Islands. She also has extensive experience reporting for international news media as a writer for The Guardian Australia and a contributor to Al Jazeera, the New Zealand Herald, and Agence France Press. Sherelle Jackson, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID Calls today. Hello, Scott. Thank you for having me. So I like to start the way I usually do, actually find out where you're calling in from and how the pandemic is looking there. Sure. Uh, well, <laughs> COVID has placed me right here where I am today. So I'm actually right now in Portland, Oregon in the U.S. And I've been stranded here with my family for two years now. Um, due to border closures in New Zealand and in Samoa, it's been almost 
it's been impossible to return home um, in that time. So that's where I'm at. So you're generally based in New Zealand, but they're still still not able to get back at this time. No, I'm I'm based in Samoa in the South Pacific. I see. Um, but during the COVID, um, I flew to the U.S. I was on a Rutgers fellowship in journalism. In uh, I flew here in January 2020, and I was meant to be in residence for three months. Fortunately, I had my children with me, and the the borders closed down um, while we were here. Basically, in order for me to return home, we have to land in New Zealand. And once New Zealand closed its borders to non-citizens, it became impossible for people like myself um, to fly through to have a passage home. So it, there was no safe passage home. Um, and what happened was um, we had booked immediately booked our flights when we saw the, the situation. Um, we were in New York at the time when I could see the situation of the borders closing down all over the world. We booked our flights immediately. And our flight was meant to leave at like 11 p.m. And the New Zealand prime minister closed the borders at 12. So we missed... The, by an hour. We couldn't even land if we gotten on the plane. And um, my husband was in Fiji at the time for a meeting. He was mm. meant to be there for three days for a meeting. He had one um, hand carry. We just had two suitcases, me and my two kids, um, because we were not going to be here for long. Right. And um, my husband fortunately managed to get the last flight out of Fiji in uh, March 2020 to join us here. And since then, um, this is 2020, 2021, up until now, we haven't been able to return home. There's, there was also issues, as I'm sure you know, with COVID um, related to immigration status for myself, um, <clears throat> where if I exited at a certain point, I would be barred from re-entering. So what started off as um, really no safe passage home became an immigration issue um, and then the wow. uncertainty of returning home so in all I've fully experienced a displacement and um, feeling of disenfranchisement so to speak um, as a result of the COVID crisis uh, Thank you for sharing that I'm sorry that you've been through that and it must have been quite hard on your on your children. They didn't sign up for a two-year trip, did they? No. I mean, these kids don't wear shoes when they go to school. So it was a bit of a shock when they had to wear shoes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'll just remind folks real quickly, I'm talking to Lekapovia Sherelle Jackson today on COVID calls. And so I'm, I'm doubly astounded by your capacity to continue doing your work in this time, I mean, you're at least you're on the Pacific Rim, but that's a long way from the communities that you usually write about, isn't it? Yes. Well, fortunately, um, you know, with social media and the way that I've been doing my work, even in Samoa, a lot of it is done online and through the phones. And just because you leave a region or your home country doesn't mean you lose all the contacts and the, you know, the the friendships, um, you know, and the sources that you develop over time. 
Let's talk a little bit about the way COVID has has unfolded. The way that um, we, you were just telling a powerful story about COVID management, quite different from the experience of people in most countries. So, um, if you would maybe talk to me a little bit about Pacific Islands, Tonga, any of the region that you cover, and how COVID has played out in these places. Sure. Um, so the case of the Pacific Islands and part of the reason why I shared my story on being stuck in the U.S. is the fact that the Pacific has been largely COVID-free. Pacific Islands, um, due to a history of the influenza and the measles um, and the fact that we live in small communities, uh, the fact that community transmission would just wipe out population. Uh, so Pacific governments have been very strict in controlling the borders um, and have, you know, for whole countries have closed for months and months on end, um, even up to a year, two years for some very strictly controlled borders. Um, so that's just to ensure that um, COVID doesn't enter these islands. Now, for Samoa, we were COVID-free up until a few months ago, um, and this is the case for Tonga as well. Niue, which is one of the smaller islands in the Pacific, they only uh, have up to about 5,000 people. They just got their first case of COVID uh, two days ago. So what's happening now is as the U.S. and as the countries which had the, the highest number of cases in the beginning and midway through the pandemic, as those countries' numbers are coming down and and you know, um, businesses opening up and things going back to normal, or at least slightly so. The Pacific is now experiencing its influx. Um, so they are now, it's almost like they've had a delayed reaction in a sense, um, because it's finally reaching the shores of the Pacific. And so in, so for instance, in the past 14 days, American Samoa, which had also been largely COVID-free, has, you know, over 100 cases, which, you know, might not sound like a lot, but for an island nation, you know, of just over 70,000 people, that's, that's a lot of cases, if you look at the, the statistics surrounding it. In Guam, over the past 14 days, it's been over 2,000 cases. In Tonga, um, they're just reeling from the crisis from you know, from the volcano and uh, the tsunami. And in the past 14 days, they've had over 700 cases. Now, just imagine a country trying to recover from a double, you know, disaster, and then also adding this on top of it. It's already hard enough. Um, you know, their infrastructure has been damaged. They're, you know, they're in a crisis mode, recovery mode. And then to add this health crisis on top of it, you know. So in the past 42 days, they had over 1,000 cases, which is, you know, such a huge number for a small island state as like Tonga. Uh, Solomon Islands has also been experiencing quite a few cases uh, with over 2,000 cases in the past 14 days. These are huge numbers um, for the Pacific. Uh, for some more right now, we've only had eight cases in the past 14 days. Um, so that's still kind of manageable um, in Samoa. Well, thank you for that, that um, 
context, and it's really one that's important to understand when we talk about a global pandemic. It doesn't mean that it unfolds evenly. Uh, and and I'm particularly interested in the in, in the fact that it's now it's really the Omicron wave. I assume it's the Omicron variant, which has been introduced. You're talking about Samoa and Tonga and Nui, um, Solomon Islands, and so it's it's more transmissible than if it had been one of the first waves with the original um, COVID strain or even with Delta. Interestingly, uh, yes, it's mostly been Omicron, but in Samoa, there's been a few cases of Delta as well. Um, but for the case of Samoa, it's somehow been contained, which is great. Uh, however, that's not the same case in other places like Solomon Islands, the spread has been quite fast. Uh, and this is also the case with uh, Vanuatu's recorded over 30 cases in the past 14 days. That's quite a fast growth, um, given that they've also been largely COVID-free. So I want to ask you about the, the public health strategy in Pacific Islands uh, to the extent that you can generalize or talk about specific countries like Samoa, for example. Um, and you alluded to something about experience with previous pandemics, which strongly informs um, some of these decisions to, to lock down, close down very early. Can you talk a little bit about that history or, or about the sort of way that public health works in the Pacific Islands? Sure. So um, fortunately, my sister um, <laughs> manages COVID responses from um, in the Pacific, uh, from New Zealand, uh, some of the government responses. And I've also written extensively uh, on this issue uh, in respect to the experiences of diaspora uh, communities in the U.S., but also some of the coverage, I've covered some of the cases around the Pacific over the past two years. Now, public health sectors in the Pacific uh, vary in nature. So some islands have very robust health, you know, public health systems, and others just due to capacity constraints, kind of don't really have a strong system in place. Um, so you'd have, and the other issue there is that you'd have like a really strong public health system that is supported on one island and not necessarily strong on different islands. So even if you do have a coordinated approach um, you'll still miss out on some of the rural communities when you have a COVID, you know, national response. In the case of Samoa, the reason why the numbers are so far very low and contained is because we're still in the measles epidemic in 2019. Over 5,000 um, children were affected and uh, we had over 40 deaths at the time due to a mismanagement um, in the way that vaccinations were rolled out like a year prior. So there's still that trauma uh, and experience from public health sector in the management of that particular epidemic, uh, which is why now Samoa's really managed this one to, to a degree where it has worked, um, you know, up until just a few months ago where when the first case uh, arrived. So in Tokelau, which is one of the smaller territories in the Pacific, an atoll nation, they remained uh, COVID-free. They're not on the list yet of any of the islands uh, who had COVID. And what's interesting about Tokelau is that 
their public health system is a very small team, but they receive vaccinator training via Zoom from New Zealand. And yes, it's, it's so cool. <laughs> Um, so I wrote, I covered this for The Guardian and I spoke to the head of the public health there. And he said it was really important to, to him. Um, so it was both the director of health and the lead nurse that it was important to them that they receive this training in any means necessary so that when they did receive the first batch of the vaccine, that they were able to roll it out. Um, quickly because with the case of Tokelau being so small um, and every you know it's, it's a very close net community COVID could potentially wipe out you know some of those islands in terms of population so they were very very careful about the way they planned it and the way that New Zealand so they got their shipment from New Zealand of the, the vaccine and it's quite heart-wrenching, the photos that you see, because um, it came on a ship. And then there was one dinghy with one guy, like a, a, a soldier or, you know, one of the officers. He was in full PPE, and it was a contactless transfer from a dinghy to, yeah, so they this guy lifted it off um, a few of the boxes, because there's not that many, right? It's, right. it's not a big community. It's just over a 1,000 people that needed the vaccine um but they managed to do that transfer safely and then within two weeks they had full coverage of the first uh vaccine and then within you know after the about a month they managed to do full coverage of the second um round so that that in itself the public health response was really successful um, that they managed to basically cover a whole island in one go and effectively so. That's an incredible story, and I just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Sherelle Jackson today about Pacific Islands and the experience of, of COVID, and thank you for that overview and, and that history. I, I did want to, since you mentioned vaccination, sort of follow up on that a little bit. Um, you know, help me understand the sort of attitude in the, in the regions that you cover about vaccination is it would you find vaccine hesitancy or any sort of anti-vaccination um feeling in these places and i ask in part because um the population is diverse uh in some of them thinking about guam for example where you have u.s military presence um you also have you know obviously uh you know there's a lot of people coming and going maybe not so much during COVID, but i do wonder about how you know, that helps form a sort of popular imagination of these vaccines. You're just describing a situation where everybody in Tokelau got the vaccine and took it. So that's no hesitancy <laughs> as far as I understand. But I wonder if that's the same in Samoa or Guam. Yeah, I want to make a point. I think that's, it's, it's, I love that question. And I love this discussion. When you talk about anti-vaxxers, right, I, I want to 
point this because there is a correlation between the anti-vector and the, and the climate denier when it comes to the Pacific. We simply, majority of Pacific islands, don't have the luxury of denial, right? Because if you deny um, that fact, uh, your whole village could be wiped out, you know, um, because it's so apparent and the experiences of our, of people are, are very raw and right in front of you that the luxury of questioning the science is not necessarily afforded to the people of the Pacific. Uh, because we usually bear the brunt of the impacts of global crisis like the COVID, um, health crisis and climate change. So I think it's, it's such an important question what there has been in saying that in that context in saying that there has been some uh anti-vax movements especially in new zealand and the more exposed the country uh in terms of like to say influences from the us new zealand or australia the more likelihood that there is an anti-vax movement uh, so in Samoa, there is a group of anti-vaxxers, uh, and they are usually the, um, their argument is based on nature that, you know, that you can take vitamin C and survive. Um, <laughs> so you've got that. And then in New Zealand, uh, we've seen the protests, and that was an anti-mandate and also anti-vax protest in the past three weeks. So there is certainly some undercurrent. Culturally, uh, in Samoa and certainly in Fiji as well, the approach to the hesitancy is not necessarily because of um, they're against the vaccine, but it's just a lack of understanding and a lack of contextualizing the vaccine within cultural context. So some people, you know, they'll hear rumors and in societies that are close-knit, the rumors would spread, oh, you know, the the child, you know, turned blue because of the vaccine. Right. And so all of a sudden there's like a spiritual um, kind of theory and, uh, you know, the whole work. So there's also some cultural and spiritual spinning of the hesitancy that has occurred, but largely Pacific Island um, public health systems have been able to control the narrative and have not received a lot of um, hesitancy on the islands um, that I report on. I'm glad that you drew in climate change. I was going to ask you about that in a minute. And I think we had a lot of conversation in this pandemic early on about um, in the lockdown phase, when a lot of Western countries were going into lockdown, China was going into lockdown, and you started to see um, CO2 levels fall and emissions, you know, fall and animals returning into cities and things like that. And there was a pretty interesting and vibrant discourse of one term that had been used, it called it the anthropause. So when humanity pauses for a minute, what happens to non-humans in the environment? Interesting discussion. Um, but you're describing another facet of that, which I don't think has been described nearly enough, which is that people who live in the in places where climate change is real life every day, sea level rise is real. Um, the pandemic, uh, you loop the pandemic and the 
the concern about that with climate change in in one discussion. I think that's really really powerful. I haven't heard this is the first time I've actually heard it described in in quite that way. Can you say a little bit more about the climate change discourse in some of the places that you that you cover? Sure. Um, so I've been covering climate for too long now, <laughs> and it's gotten worse over time. So you know the the coverage um, just increases over time. Now, uh, what I mentioned before was the correlation between anti-vaxxers and climate deniers, and how in the Pacific we just simply don't have that luxury of denying climate change because it's very apparent and it's right in front of our eyes. So that is. It's the same case uh, in a way with the with COVID, but I take your point on the fact that there was this pause in developed countries um, in their vehicles emitting all of the you know causing further harm and making the situation worse. And what I found very interesting was seeing the fact that it was possible that indeed. You know, the emissions could go down when everyone stopped driving their cars every day. And that's exactly what happened during COVID. So I think the sad thing here is that it took a direct threat to the lives of developed nations for that type of action to occur. But these threats have been occurring to the lives of Pacific Islanders for years and years and years. Like I've lived through at least eight cyclones throughout my life. You know, so but it 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 doesn't really register that danger and the crisis until it really hits Western countries, right? We see if we look at coverage of issues, if we look at the, the Ukraine invasion, um, the way that the media has covered you know, those who have fled Ukraine and the way they've covered, uh, you know, the same incidents by brown people or black people who cross borders, the framing is different. Hmm. So with climate change, it is the exact same thing until it hits the shores of rich, wealthy nations and it, until it affects cities that people know of. Um, it's, you know, the experience of Pacific Islands have continued to be undercovered over the years. Fortunately, with time that has changed, um, and in the last five years, we've seen a much higher coverage of the climate crisis in the Pacific. Talking to Sherelle Jackson today on COVID calls. I, Sherelle, let me just linger on this for a second because of your quite unique vantage point. So you've been there in the United States during the pandemic. When we've also seen a historically high uh, number of um, acts of aggression and violence against Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, um, some of whom have been citizens of the United States for generations and generations, and some of whom are part of, um, I can only assume, diaspora communities that were there. You have a quite extraordinary story to tell, I have to say, but um, who could be part of diasporic communities. Is that something you've been covering or marking there in in the United States? I don't know if you want to speak about that personally, but just as as a sort of a more general issue, because that's been, again, a part of this pandemic, which is it goes well beyond epidemiology. 
wow. <laughs> but uh, I didn't I didn't realize we were going to go down this road. But I'm I'm grateful for the question. I think it is important to to discuss those issues. Um, in the two years I've been here and in Portland, basically, uh, we've witnessed uh, mass protests, hate crimes, um, heat waves, uh, and snowstorms. It's been a full spectrum of experience. In respect to the way that Asian, the, or at least my experience and what I've witnessed of the treatment of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders here, I think it's important to note that um, the grouping itself is problematic because Pacific Islanders and Asians, as I'm sure you know, brought into space in Asia, are two very distinctly different groups. Um, And so that lack of acknowledgement that Asians are separate from Pacific Islanders is in itself uh, problematic. You know, and it's it's not necessarily a, a good place to start from. Mm-hmm. Um, in saying that, I was born and brought up in Samoa, primarily, so it's majority uh, indigenous. My mother is a high chief. I was mm-hmm. raised in a very strong culture. I speak my language, all, all our languages. And to be in a place where I was not, where it was not my choosing to stay here because of, I was forced to do so due to, to the pandemic. And then to witness the way that people of color are treated directly or indirectly or through the systems in place that work against them has been really eye opening. I, I've always heard and read about racism in America, but I never fully realized the magnitude and the depth of it until I lived here. Um, so that's, that's kind of yeah. a very quick response. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to blindside you with that question, but it's, again, no I, I really appreciate it. And I also really appreciate your attention to the, the whole problematic of even framing it in racial categories. Um, and so it's, it's the double bind of trying to even report on racialized violence is that those are the categories we've inherited within which to make sense of, of the violence. Um, let me, um, if we can, we can transition now to talk a little bit about the recent, the volcano and tsunami, uh, the impact in the Pacific Islands, particularly Tonga. So it, so much happens every day. It's like this dominated the news cycle for three, four days mm-hmm. and then and then it oh. fell off. This is a massive, massive disaster. And uh, I want to acknowledge Sarah McBride, who's an earthquake expert um, who helped put this call together. And, um, you know, she's the one who wrote to me and said, you've got to talk to some people about this. And that she was right because, you know, even now, um, I don't hear much discussion about it. So could you sort of just bring us back to that event and what, how you followed it and, and what the impacts were so far as you know? Sure. So Twitter's available too. Um, and on Twitter, I follow a lot of a few royals in Tonga, um, members of parliament, uh, as well as journalists and key influences, both in Tonga and Tongan diaspora, including um, my colleague, uh, Josephine, who works in the UK. Now, 
I found out through Twitter. One of the royal family members tweeted and said, ash is falling. And immediately I was like, what, where is the ash coming from? This is weird. Like I didn't. And that's when I checked in and the satellite imagery was already out. Uh, and then slowly following that in the Pacific, Facebook is the preferred social media platform. So then I immediately went to the Pacific and checked in on the Tongan feed. Um, and in, on Facebook itself, people who were experiencing it, experiencing it were doing lives. So there was a lot of live footage from the ground of people running, people getting in their cars, people like grabbing their kids, their dogs, uh, and just giving us like a live coverage right up until the internet connection went down. So that's how I followed it was through Twitter and Facebook and then also reaching out to Hong and friends and, um, and colleagues to get updates from them directly because they were on the phone with their families. Um, it was, it was such a powerful and very shocking thing to witness, um, from far away because when I saw the satellite image, um, the island I'm from, which is in Samoa, was one of the first places the waves, like the, when you saw the image, the waves hit that wasn't Tonga. And like to see my island and the villages that was part of my childhood, where families, where our relatives still live, and to see that hit from something that came from Tonga was just like, mm. it, it was really shocking. I couldn't really register. So I can only imagine what Tongan people were going through. And um, I did do a spaces session with currently um, with actually Joseph, who you quoted earlier, and Josephine, who works in the UK. And it was the same thing for them that they shared. It was like they could not believe that that was happening in Tonga. So to see all of that unfold, um, and I, you know, I checked in on our family. It was a very minor, minor wave that came through. It was very low and slow moving, um, but there was no direct impact. I would say that social media was really a valuable tool to track what was happening on the ground. Oh, I'm glad everybody in your family is okay, and and that that experience that you're describing. Again, it has an interesting connection back to COVID. And I've talked to other people who are away from home and watching COVID numbers sort of washing just like a wave and that experience of fear and inability to do anything. Um, you know, we have all these technologies now that allow us, as you say, to follow these things from a distance and satellite photos that you can watch the wave in real time. But, um, but that concern is is real and there's a sense of distance there which is heightened i think by the pandemic and 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 i wanted to come back to the pandemic in in tonga because those those numbers that we talked about earlier are really i mean that's one of the first things that was raised is okay international aid is going to arrive and with that international aid workers and with them covid came covid yeah it's like um with a double-edged sword right yeah it was that was such a sad and, in a way, an irresponsible thing that occurred. 
um, because Australia should have um, put in place measures to make sure that that didn't happen. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about the, the sort of way that these negotiations and discussions about international aid work in Pacific Islands. I mean, I suppose you can refuse, but, you know, I mean, if these are small countries and dev there's devastation or concern about other kinds of disease that can follow any sort of disaster, it's hard to say no, I think. Yeah, we don't really have the luxury of saying no, right? Because when you need assistance, and Australia and New Zealand are usually the first ones as the main bilateral aid to the Pacific, you know, you take it. You take what you can get um, at the most immediate time. And the hope there is that the sending nation observes due process uh, so that it doesn't cause further harm, which if you look at the case of Tokelau and New Zealand's treatment of the way they sent the vaccine to Tokelau, you know, that was perfectly executed. Um, and, and I think the reason why Tonga is experiencing this is because you've had, they've just had a double crisis and then you added this on top of it. So I think it's just sadly, almost like a perfect storm for something like this to occur. How are you thinking about the economic impacts of the volcanic eruption and the and the tsunami? And I want to connect this with your earlier discussion about, about climate change. So assuming, I guess, economic impacts will also exacerbate what may already be visible economic impacts of climate change in Pacific Islands? I mean, that's already happening across the Pacific. Um, island governments have to brace for cyclones, you know, three, four times a year. So you almost have this uh, disaster recovery built into the system. And you'll find that businesses uh, bounce back easily, but also factor that kind of a few months where you're just not operating because the likelihood of a cyclone occurring and just crippling your business uh, is quite high. So the economic impact of the climate crisis is already being seen in the Pacific. Um, COVID has already impacted tourism sector all across the Pacific, and that is the lifeblood of uh, many of our economies. So to have that being directly hit um, is just just another blow uh, to the economies of the Pacific. So just about out of time in my COVID calls discussion today with Lagapoiba, Sherelle Jackson. Um, so I guess what I really want to know is what's next for you. Um, do you have any sort of sense of, of um, the kinds of stories you are going to be covering here in the near term? And I guess more generally, I think anybody listening to this is wondering, when can you go home? So I continue to cover COVID-related stories in the Pacific, uh, politics, as well as uh, any climate change-related stories. When can I, can I go home? Well, currently, uh, New Zealand is still hesitating. New Zealand still doesn't allow non-citizens to land. Um, and in order for me to get home, we have to go through New Zealand. Uh, another factor is that there is a 21-day uh, quarantine period in Samoa with regular um, testing, and I have two very young kids, 
and I'm not going to subject them to to getting jabbed up in the nose uh, a few times a week. So hopefully, if those restrictions are lifted by the end of the year, that we can return home. I did a 14-day quarantine with two children uh, here in South Korea, which I very stupidly thought was going to be like some sort of a vacation or something. It wasn't. So let me endorse your philosophy. <laughs> I think you're being very smart about thing. it. I know my kids. They are not going to survive in a hotel room, or I won't survive. Either way, it's not going to be good. By the time we were doing quarantine in-house Olympics, I knew we had reached some new level of uh, yeah. madness. So I think I endorse <laughs> well, your decision. Very brave of you to do that. Well, um, let me remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls and uh, you can usually catch COVID calls live at 7 p.m. Eastern time, although these days we're doing COVID calls at all different sorts of times leading up to the 500th episode, which will take place on March 16th. And I just want to thank my guests, Lagapoiva, Sherelle Jackson. We had to reschedule this a couple of times. You've been very kind to make time and I learned a lot in this conversation. Thank you so very much. Thank you very much for the opportunity and I wish you well for the rest of your show. Stay healthy, everyone, and we'll see you next time on COVID Calls.